Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, The Moth in the Iron Lung, a biography of polio. Uh, Sox vaccine basically came out in 1954, 55. It was an injected vaccine, went into the bloodstream, and it worked horribly. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of stories about contamination in the vaccine that killed people. They had to withdraw it. Um, it took years before people trusted it again. And in fact, most doctors and scientists at the time, they didn't like it themselves. They didn't like SOC and they didn't like the vaccine. This podcast is brought to you by Reverse Speech Radio, a podcast committed to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Using the exact same technology as the CIA, they know because they trained them. Join hosts Christian Dicadure and David John Oates every week and hear never-before-heard reversals, revealing the hidden truth. Catch politicians lying, climb inside the head of serial killers, even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Find out more at reversespeech.ca. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Forrest Moretti is standing by with a history of polio you've likely not heard before. Just a reminder, if you've not done so, please take a moment and fill out an incredibly short audience survey. I swear it'll take you 15 seconds and it'll really help me out. Here's the URL, but I've also included it in the episode notes. HTTP colon double slash survey.libson.com slash conspiracy hyphen unlimited. Again, HTTP colon double slash survey dot libsyn l-i-b-s-y-n dot com slash conspiracy hyphen unlimited and this helps me understand who's listening to this podcast but it also helps me put conspiracy unlimited in front of libsyn advertisers and quite frankly that's how i make a living again the url is http colon double slash survey dot libsyn dot com slash conspiracy hyphen unlimited And again, it's also in the episode notes. You're about to hear a fascinating account of the world's most famous disease, polio, told as you've never heard it before. Epidemics of paralysis began to rage in the early 1900s, seemingly out of nowhere. Doctors, parents, and health officials were at a complete loss to explain why this formerly unheard of disease began paralyzing so many children, usually starting in their legs, sometimes moving up through their abdomen and arms. For an unfortunate few, it could paralyze the muscles that allowed them to breathe. Why did this disease start to become such a horrible problem during the late 1800s? Why did it affect children more than adults? Why was it originally called 
teething paralysis by mothers and their doctors? Why were animals so often paralyzed during the early epidemics when it was later discovered most animals could not become infected? The moth in the iron lung is a fascinating biography of this horrible paralytic disease, where it came from and why it disappeared in the 1950s. After graduating from Wake Forest University with a degree in religion and music, Forrest Moretti plied his trade in the film industry for several years, working on several Muppet movies, four seasons of Dawson's Creek, and many other films and television shows as an audio engineer, editor, composer, and animator. He transitioned into technology as a designer and developer for visual effects software and CTO at Next Glass, now called Untapped. He's the creator of the popular My Incredible Opinion and Vax Baby video series. He spent the last few years researching and writing about some of the most enigmatic riddles of science and medicine, notably autism and polio. Forrest has spoken at events and conferences around the country, but prefers to stay close to his writing home in the cab of a 1992 F-150, where many of his manuscripts were composed. He is the author of The Autism Vaccine, Crooked, and The Moth in the Iron Lung. Forrest Moretti, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Hey, Richard. Uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. I'm looking forward to uh, talking about uh, this book you've just finished. The Moth in the Iron Lung, and this is a history of polio that people have not heard, and they really need to read uh, The Moth in the Iron Lung. Most of us, of, of course, are familiar uh, with the Iron Lung, which became the symbol of, of polio, I guess, starting in the 1930s and 40s, and certainly right up into the 1960s. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the moth. One of the things that you do so well in this book is you connect historical events that seemingly are unrelated. Uh, but for example, you take us really from the Civil War and how that ultimately leads to perhaps one of the causes of polio. But let's, let's just start with the, the Civil War and how a shortage of cotton really leads to, well, the moth in this story. Yeah, up in the north, you can imagine uh, mercantile shipments sort of came to a halt during the Civil War. And uh, cotton, which is obviously, or for those of you who don't live in the United States, is a staple of, was a staple of southern farming at that time, uh, was not making it into uh, the northern states. And they were searching uh, like mad for some alternative to produce textiles with. And um, one of those things um, was some experimental moth breeding. And they weren't real familiar with the potential negative consequences of invasive species at that time. So people were a little more careless than they would be today. And uh, a Frenchman who'd moved to Boston brought in a new um, species of moth called the gypsy moth. And uh, it escaped from his yard where he was breeding them, and it became a menace um, eventually all over the country. It's, it's a story that's sort of been lost to history. But if you go back and look through it, it, it was a real nightmare. I mean, you, you, your listeners may remember kudzu. You know, when kudzu first started appearing in North America, you might see a story now and then about kudzu was going to take over the entire 
continent, well, the gypsy moth was a much bigger deal back then. I mean, it was a real menace that was destroying trees, timber, um, all over the country. And, and it began, was it Boston, uh, where, it, yeah, where Boston. this outbreak began, right? Yeah, Medford, actually. It's a little town. Um, it, it's basically uh, just outside of Boston, and that's where uh, the moth escaped. And none of the pesticides they were using against it um, seemed to work. And one of the most popular ones was actually a, a green dye called Paris Green, and it was a type of arsenic. Right. And that had been the go-to pesticide at the time, but it washed off too easily. If you got a single storm, all of the pesticide would wash off, and it didn't seem to affect the moths anyway. Um, so they combined lead and arsenic together and created what they termed lead arsenic. It was a new pesticide. It wouldn't wash off as easily. And it was slightly more effective as a pesticide. It wasn't a miracle pesticide. It was just a little bit better. The real positive thing about it was it didn't wash off. It just stayed on things. So that's where they started um, spraying um, to combat the gypsy moth. And you can imagine they knew they were in a race against time. They had to contain it because as it got, as its range began to spread, the amount of area they had to spray to contain it, you know, would quickly just become impossible. You paint an amazing, sorry, you paint an amazing picture uh, in one of the towns that had been invaded and overrun by the gypsy moth. Uh, Just how pervasive, I mean, it was in people's houses, it was, it, uh, it, it looked like the city had been I don't know, sprayed with Agent Orange during, you know, the the Vietnam era or something because every tree was just totally bare. Uh, It it, it was quite remarkable. Yeah, it it really, if you read accounts uh, from that time, it it sounds like a nightmare. I mean, these things, people would come home and shake them out of their pillowcases. They were in their closets. I mean, back then, Homes weren't hermetically sealed with moisture barrier wrap like they are nowadays. And they were everywhere. They, they would crush thousands of them just taking a simple carriage ride, carriage ride down the street. Um, so, you know, in addition to destroying all the foliage, um, they stunk. They made life unbearable. I mean, and these were millions and millions of them. It, it, it sounds biblical. I mean, there's no way around it. Right. It, it just sounds like a biblical plague. And they were, they, the administering the, the lead arsenic was rather cumbersome. I mean, it was done by horse and wagon uh, and uh, uh, just kind of spraying it from the ground. But that all changed, of course, after World War I. Yeah, exactly. They, uh, the airplanes uh, had come into existence. They had commercialized aircraft. There were pilots, and there was a keen interest to see if they could actually spray uh, from above. And uh, it was actually pretty successful. And um, what had once been applied, as you mentioned, by usually just by a hand, hand pump or a gasoline engine-powered pump, um, they started carpet bombing areas to try and control the, the spread of the moth. And um, and then, of course, they started using it for other um, 
other pests as well. It wasn't just the gypsy moth, but initially that was uh, the, the the vector that caused commercial pesticide use to sort of come into its own. Right. Up until that point, it was sort of, you can imagine grandma, you know, with the, um, the flower sifter and the little can with the crank on the side sort of going over her tomato plants and trying to uh, maybe save uh, some of her tomatoes from some Japanese beetles or some other pest. But uh, lead arsenic, when it was first invented in 1892, and then as it made it spread, that was really the first time you saw commercial pesticide use in the United States um, You know, at that scale. It, it was a huge, huge shift in agriculture, uh, agricultural practices, right. because it was a commercial pesticide that was being applied as a weapon of war, basically. And it was it was indiscriminate. I mean, people were being literally crop dusted while they sat there outside, let's say, eating their lunch. Well, th- somewhat, that became a, a much worse problem later uh, with DDT. Um, because DDT was applied directly to humans on purpose. Yes. Um, and food. Uh, let arsenic, there was a sense that this this was toxic. They, they knew that. They weren't trying. Uh, DDT was thought to be completely innocuous. Um, it had zero side effects. And in fact, you could spray it on your children's lunch just for good measure before they went to school. Why not? You know, <laughs> it'll keep the bugs off their lunch. While they're eating, you don't have to shoo the flies off your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Uh, lead arsenic was recognized as toxic. Um, now, they would wash it off or, you know, back then, if you couldn't see it, then it must not be there. So um, problems did start to emerge from the pesticide. I mean, there was sickness. There were some neurological phenomena associated with it. But the obvious thing that this is what the book talks about is um, a strange new illness started to make its appearance. And in fact, uh, a year after the lead arsenic began being sprayed in Boston was really the first recorded what they would now consider an epidemic of polio. Right. It was 26 people that had been affected. And um, it's sort of a remarkable trend if you follow the spread of the gypsy moth and the initial attempts to combat it with lead arsenic um, you can follow epidemics of polio in lockstep alongside it and that was sort of the major discovery of mine that led me to go down this rabbit hole to understand why those things seem to be so closely associated the moth in the iron lung so let's talk about poliomyelitis. What is it exactly? It's changed. Our words, people think of words as meaning the same thing over time, but the meanings of things change. And poliomyelitis, as it was originally coined, was a description of a symptom. This is a really important distinction that any other polio book you read, they just don't seem to uh, have figured this out. Poliomyelitis was a head. It was something like I might say you have a headache, you might have a scar. Poliomyelitis was a fancy term for meaning you had inflammation in the gray, which is sort of the inside part of your spinal cord. And the only way they even knew that was by doing dissections on you know autopsies. 
on, on people or animals that had died. But for some reason, uh, people, uh, normally children, would start to have paralysis, normally in their legs, starting in their legs, I should say. And um, they started doing, uh, some of these children would die and they would do autopsies on them. And they had inflammation in the, uh, in the gray part of their spinal cord. And they called that poliomyelitis. It meant gray inflammation in the gray part of the spinal cord. And it was used as a symptom freely. A doctor, if a, if a child had a, had a weakness in their leg, they would say, oh, they probably have a myelitis, just like a poliomyelitis. Just like I might say, oh, you have a headache, you know, if you're complaining about your head hurting. Um, they didn't know what caused it, uh, but they knew it was there, and, and they started to see it more often. And they saw it in animals, and they saw it um, in humans. They didn't know what caused it, but it was there. Um, and... Early, oh, oh, oh sorry. Ahead. I was going to say that early on, somebody tried to make a connection between teething and the onset of of infant paralysis. Talk to me about that. Yeah, uh, actually, the earliest um, accounts of anything resembling what we now call polio was called teething paralysis. That was the most common term. Parents called it that. Uh, doctors called it that. They called it teething paralysis. They didn't know why, but children who were teething uh, seemed to be getting it. Now, it might be the age was around that time, the age of onset. Um, but the fact that a probably the most popular medical remedy for children at that time was mercury powder. Um, there were teething powders. They were actually sold like aspirin might be today this didn't require a prescription you could go to the store and you'd get a packet of like teething powder just like you might see bc powder they were in these little folded up pieces of paper if you had an infant who was teething um back then teething was thought to be uh the the cause of all sorts of sickness i mean it was viewed with superstition i mean it was thought to be a a horribly delicate time in a baby's life when they're teething that's when they get all these sicknesses so to combat that they would give them mercury powder and this wasn't something they would rub like a salve on their gums they actually would put it on their tongue and uh, give them a bottle of some milk and they would swallow it and it would get into their intestines and i think uh, it's pretty clear in retrospect that the reason it was called teething paralysis is these children were being paralyzed uh, from mercury poisoning and um, interestingly, uh, teething paralysis held up for a while, and then um, in the late 1800s, it started to become infantile paralysis, um, because other children who were a little bit older, but who weren't teething, started to um, show these signs of paralysis. And so they changed it to infantile paralysis, because it wasn't just teething anymore. Right. And... and, and uh Talk to me about, I mean, this became a real conundrum because there didn't seem to be any logic or pattern to these outbreaks. You could have, uh, you know, one person in a house, uh, you know, affected and, and not the siblings. You could have an entire orphanage, let's say, where no one was affected. Uh, you could have people living in very 
you know, unsanitary uh, conditions, no one affected, and then maybe, you know, someone living in an in a upwardly mobile household being affected. There was no rhyme or reason. Yeah, it was very confusing to scientists at the time. Now, in retrospect, we and uh, we, by we, I mean me and you, because the uh, general scientific community is still in complete um, befuddlement as to what happened. But I think anyone who, who's researched this can kind of see what happened. Um, but at the time, they were clueless as to what was going on. And um, it didn't spread like a normal epidemic would. You know, if you plot out, uh, you might have read that book, The Ghost Map, which is a, a really interesting book about how cholera uh, was discovered that it was a bacterial infection in water and um, anyway you know you're able to to plot the map you're able to plot the spread of a disease and polio did not seem to follow that trend there were houses um, where one child would come down pr- with paralysis and the others would be fine there were some houses where every child seemed to get it and um, it wouldn't. It just didn't move in the ways they normally thought that disease would. You know, n- normally disease at that time was thought and suspected to be transmissible and contagious. They sort of had these general concepts, even if they didn't really understand bacterial or viral infections. They at least understood contagion, and the paralysis of polio didn't play by the rules. It, it would just skip, and. Um, it was always the young, and it was always their legs. There were these strange components to it um, that didn't add up. And, and impressively, uh, this seemed to be one of the few diseases that didn't target the poor. You know, normally the poor were thought of as, as um, uniquely susceptible to disease, and they were. You know, they lived in squalor and ate poorly and had no... Uh, ventilation where they lived and and they did catch a lot of disease but for some reason um, polio was not uh, a city born disease initially it was a rural disease it was happening on farms well well away from city centers and, and there were just a lot of factors like that 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 confused those who studied it but there was an an epidemic uh, in New York City uh, talk to me about that yeah, this was in 1916, and uh, it was it was really the first time that polio got noticed. And when I say polio, uh, I need to circle back real quickly and explain how the word has changed. Because remember, initially, it was describing a symptom, uh, which was paralysis caused by inflammation in the spinal cord. And... Um, a few years before this outbreak in 1916, um, two scientists had discovered what they thought to be the cause of polio, which was a virus. Now, we now know, you know, with hindsight, that there are many viral infections which can cause paralysis. If the virus is capable of getting into the spinal cord, it will cause paralysis. There are certain enteroviruses that are um, really, really nasty at this. 
Um, there's one called Coxsackie virus. There's one called Echovirus. There's another one called D68 that you hear about nowadays in the news. These are all enterovirus infections. Poliovirus was just another one of several enteroviruses that were capable of paralysis if they got into the nervous system. So these two um, scientists discovered a virus that could cause paralysis and they named it poliovirus because it seemed to be capable of causing these gray, uh, these lesions in the gray matter of the spinal cord. So there you go. That's how poliovirus was born. It's an unfortunate name because polio actually is a generic term for paralysis caused by a number of enteroviruses. Now, in that time, we've renamed things, and people think of polio as meaning paralysis by specifically the poliovirus, and medically, that's what we accept in modern times, but if you look back in history, when you see the word polio and poliomyelitis, it, it could have been any number of viruses. It could have been one of several. So just so your, you know, your listeners understand, uh, the, the word has some baggage associated with it because when we say polio today, we mean uh, paralysis caused by a particular virus when the reality is there are several enteroviral infections which can cause the exact same thing. And in fact, some of them are worse than the poliovirus. Some of them are more infective than the poliovirus. I'll, I'll go back to that once we get to modern times. But as you were asking, in 1916, there was a massive outbreak in New York City. And this, remember, at that time, uh, urban polio epidemics were fairly uncommon. You might see a few. Nothing like um, the flu or, you know, a normal epidemic outbreak. But in 1916, uh, it was huge. I mean, there were thousands of people. Uh, I think it ended up being seven or 8,000 people killed across the country, uh, two or 3,000 in New York City alone. And that number was never matched again. Even at the height of polio in the 40s and 50s, it, it never came close to that again. This was a, a wake-up call. Something very strange happened in New York City. Um, people are really suspicious because the Rockefeller... Um, research laboratory which was working on trying to create a more virulent strain of the poliovirus um, was only uh, a mile or two away from the epicenter of this outbreak and they were trying to get the uh, virus to be so virulent it could be transmitted through mosquito bites and of course that makes you think uh, this doesn't sound good. That the the worst outbreak in the history of polio, one that it, you know it never happened again. This was a, an anomaly. Right, was only a mile or two away from the epicenter of polio research, where they were trying to create a, the most virulent strain they could. And just it's interesting why the reason they were trying to create a virulent strain of polio is because the normal ones wouldn't paralyze very easily. They just weren't that bad. They could inject them directly into monkeys, and they would normally not cause paralysis. They had to inject the virus directly into the nervous system to get the paralysis to happen. So as they were gearing up to start trying to develop a vaccine for it, they wanted to create a strain that would, that would infect and paralyze animals in a natural way. And the natural way is oral. You know, you, you get polio, like all enteroviruses, you get them 
swimming or drinking or somehow getting contaminated water or food right. into your intestines, and that's Fe- how you get it. Fecal to oral transmission. Yeah, the fecal oral route. It's a, it's not a, a nice thought, um, but that's why uh, this sort of superstition came out that you know polio happened in the summer, which was true, and pe- people swimming and swimming holes and swimming pools seemed to be affected by it, which was also true. We now know why. It was an enteroviral infection, and that's how they're transmitted. They're transmitted mostly through swimming in contaminated bodies of water. Well, at least in the case of New York City, uh, this was the cause. Uh, As we mentioned, other outbreaks may have been tied or were likely tied to uh, lead arsenide and even mercury uh, poisoning. But in the case of New York, we're talking about um, a virus or several viruses. It's remarkable you talked about bathing and people don't realize that, you know, in 1916, I think this, the statistic that you quoted in, in the book is only 2% of houses actually had, in New York City, had a, had a bathtub. Yeah, I, I may have mentioned it in the book, I can't remember, but there's actually a picture where of some of this tenement housing and the people would put the bathtub, they'd hang it outside the apartment, you know, literally outside the window, hanging six stories above the sidewalk below. Um, it was so unimportant, uh, they would leave it out there until they absolutely needed to have it. And, yeah, sanitation at the time was poor in the cities. It was actually, I would consider it good in rural areas. Um, but it, it was definitely transmissible. The transmission of enteroviruses uh, did become a problem. But I need to go back real quick. So uh, for those uh, of your listeners that are wondering what the connection uh, between this pesticide and polio might be, this is really important. Because people hear the, the shell of the story and they immediately believe that what I'm insinuating is that all along, uh, polio and these the paralysis that happened during this time was pesticide poisoning. And that's not what I'm actually insinuating. Now, there was some of that for sure. Pesticides are certainly capable of creating all sorts of neurological problems. The actual problem is these pesticides were capable of creating uh, what we might now call leaky gut. And they create cellular membrane dysfunction that's how they kill and the viral infection what was once a trivial viral infection polio remember there's several of them polio coxsackie virus echovirus d68 they were able to migrate from the intestines into the spinal cord which lies directly behind the intestines and in fact it's nearly adjacent to it Right, because so normally, the, normally the gut and the intestines are an incredible, uh, you know, guardian against these types of viruses. Yeah, it's you know they say seventy, eighty percent of your immune system is in your gut, and it's it, it works really well. And um, normally, uh, a poliovirus infection is completely innocuous. Um, in a healthy individual. A poliovirus infection is almost subclinical. You, you wouldn't even know you had it. Now, some people might get a stomach ache, uh, might feel a little feverish, or some sign of inflammation somewhere in the body. That's the typical um, 
way that people get immunity to, quote, polio is they feel a little off for a few hours. The question is, why did a formerly innocuous virus like polio start to paralyze children in their legs around the same time these pesticides began being used? And my, my theory, and what seems to be pretty obvious to me, is these pesticides were creating a path from the normally robust immune system of the intestines they were creating a path directly into the spinal cord behind. And interestingly, this, the bottom of the spinal cord in an in a infant lies directly behind the intestines, and that's the legs. That's mm. the part of the spinal cord that controls their legs. This is where the paralysis almost always started, and it would work its way up. Um, for adults, um, their spinal cord doesn't grow, doesn't continue to grow throughout their life like a child. And so... When you get a viral infection, even if your gut was screwed up from pesticide um, consumption, it's unlikely the virus is able to um, make its way into your spinal cord because it's actually now several inches above your intestines. So that is my uh, theory about why these pesticides were causing an immense uh, rise in the number of paralysis cases from enteroviral infections, and I just need to say it one more time, not just the poliovirus, but several other viruses as well. And we know this, I'll talk about it later, but we know this from scientific study. This is not um, a theory of mine. This is confirmed scientific uh, work that many of cases of paralysis, I will say most cases of paralysis weren't poliovirus infections. They were other enteroviral infections. More of my conversation with Forrest Moretti when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Have you checked out my Strange Planet shop yet? We just launched our brand new Nazca Lines merch. Mugs, t-shirts, tote bags, and stickers. I've partnered with a talented artist from Phoenix, and you have to see these cool designs for yourself. The Nazca Lines t-shirts are available for a limited time only. Right now, you can purchase the t-shirts at a special price of $18.50 US, but this deal won't last long. To start shopping, go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button. Get your Nazca Lines merch at strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Wear the shirt. Take the journey. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. We're back with Forrest Moretti, and the book is The Moth in the Iron Lung, a biography of polio, and Forrest, of course, the author of Crooked, Man-Made Diseases Explained, and of course, also the explosive autism vaccine. Um... Just going back to New York for a moment in that outbreak in 1916, and, and you, you, the, again, the, you tell the story, it's, it's so gripping. What a panic uh, the mayor and public health officials were in, uh, desperately trying to save children. Uh, and t talk to me about some of the efforts that they made in terms of sanitation and so forth, and how maybe that exacerbated the problem. 
Yeah, they. Um, it was a bad time. You, you, you can imagine the panic uh, of having thousands of children coming down with this illness, uh, something that most doctors had never seen before in their careers. They had heard of cases, perhaps, uh, but this, for some reason, this was a, a massive outbreak they'd never seen before. But um, one of the things uh, they did, uh, I, I, if this is the thing you're referring to, is their, their street cleaning yes. techniques were absolutely atrocious. Um, they would spray the streets off um, while the trash was out. And you can imagine trash um, at that time. They were not in sealed plastic trash bags. There were uh, the refuse and um, dirty clothes and diapers, if you if you want to call it that, fecal material were strewn about the street every night. You know, every nightmare scenario you've ever seen of someone slopping out their night uh, what did they call it? Their night soil. <laughs> into the sidewalk, which was basically them going to the bathroom in the middle, middle of the night in a bucket, and they just dump it out of their window onto the sidewalk. It was it was that level of sanitation problem. And so street sweepers would come by uh, with pumps of water um, trying to um, clear the streets. But rather than waiting till the trash men had come to pick up the trash, they would do it while the trash was sitting there. And um, there were some people that were you know, guessing that this was not going to have a good effect. Um, and, and they doubled and tripled the amount of street flushing they did in hopes that it would uh, contain it. And public um, ba- uh, pools were very popular at the time. You can imagine there was no, um, no air conditioning. And so uh, bathhouses or pool houses were, were very popular uh, during the summer um, where a lot of uh, children, mainly boys, would go swimming. There was always a disparate amount of boys, so this is sort of like autism, that would um, get polio over girls, and they never could understand that. And my suspicion is um, boys swam more than girls did. I mean, it, it, I asked my father about this. He grew up in dirt poor North Carolina, you know, with, with a, he got a single light bulb when he was five years old. And that was like a miracle for them mm. to have a light bulb. And swimming was during the summer when school was out and you weren't on the farm. Uh, if you'd done all your chores, um, they would swim because it was so hot. That was the only thing they could do. Uh, but the girls, you know, they didn't, they couldn't take off their shirts no. and swim in their shorts. They had to rent some uh, cumbersome. They have, yeah. yeah. And they didn't have bathing suits. I mean, they no way they could have afforded bathing suits back then. And the bathing suits... They rented bathing suits. Girls rented bathing suits back then. Yeah. Um, and they were 10-pound pieces of wool. and So boys were in the water all the time. The girls weren't. I mean, this is a obvious stereotype. Uh, but my father seems to confirm it, that his, his memory is that his sisters never went swimming and that he and his brothers always did during the summer. So I have a suspicion that might be why there is a male prevalence of uh, polio is is because of that. I doubt you would see that prevalence nowadays, but back then it was pronounced. Right, right. And also, the it also explains why the outbreaks always seem to take place in the summer. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, now uh, the, the, I'll call it the quote, if you can see my fingers, I'm air quoting polio, which is in the fall. That's when you see it now. And um, these are, you'll see cases in the news of mystery polio-like illness. And these normally happen uh, now in the fall, but back then it was the summer uh, when the chances of fecal oral route transmission were most high. Once again, this is kids swimming. This is how these enteroviruses got spread most of the time. This isn't the only way they're spread. Back then, they, researchers thought they were spread uh, through mosquitoes or flies. And it only amped up their pesticide efforts uh, to try and squash uh, mosquitoes and, and flies to prevent the spread of polio. Uh, when irony of ironies, it likely increased it. Um, not increased the spread, but it increased the likelihood that someone with a intraviral infection uh, would end up having a problem with paralysis. Let's talk now, about, uh, sorry, finish your, your thought, and then I want to um, move to another area. Well, Go I was ahead. going to talk about the other, there's actually two other ways um, that people get paralyzed um, yes. okay. with polio. And when I'm, once again, I'm using the generic term poliomyelitis, which means uh, inflammation of the spinal cord from a viral infection. And um, the one we all know is an enteroviral infection, such as poliovirus, echovirus, Coxsackie virus. These sorts of things can occasionally get into the spinal cord through the gut. This is my hypothesis. Through a compromised gut due to pesticide poisoning, essentially. And um, they can cause paralysis. There are actually two other ways that they knew about that you could get polio. One of which is something they call provocation polio which is where, imagine one of these enteroviruses is just on your skin, and if you get a deep puncture wound, it can drive the virus um, into your skin, and if it gets into your nervous system, these enteroviruses are really nasty about replicating inside neural tissue. So um, at that time, they realized that giving shots to children, namely in the form of vaccines, had a propensity for creating a localized polio. Now, normally, if you had a, let's say you had uh, one of these enteroviruses on your skin, they didn't clean your skin off good enough, they poked you with a syringe to give you a vaccine, it would push the virus into your nervous system, and then um, you get local paralysis at the site of the shot, which is very different than the normal polio, but sometimes it could spread, and it could spread far enough that it could kill you. So. <laughs> Doctors at that time um, knew this, and they stopped giving shots to kids during the summer. They were so afraid of inadvertently paralyzing children, they would wait until the fall or winter. So this was a readily known phenomenon. This wasn't some obscure theory. Most people have never heard of it today, but back then they knew about it. They, they were conscientious about it. You know, They respected it, and they would wait until summer had passed before they gave shots. The other one is, go ahead. No, 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 uh, you, you, you please continue. The, 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 la the, the third one is, is incredibly fascinating and horrible. And it actually was confirmed by one of the polio vaccine inventors, um, Sabin, I believe it was Sabin, it may have been Salk, but 
you remember, they were having a hard time infecting monkeys regularly with the poliovirus. They could not create paralysis easily. It was very rare that injecting a monkey uh, in their blood or, let's say, administering it to them orally, it was very rare for the monkeys to get paralyzed. So they noticed that if somebody had had a tonsillectomy, which is was the most popular surgery at mm. that time in the in the entire country or entire continent, that children um, would more frequently get um, polio infections, and it was the worst kind. It's what they call bulbar polio. Bulbar is a, sort of a short for uh, a part of the brain stem that they call the bulb because it looks like a, a light bulb or even maybe a bulb of a flower, uh, a plant, and. Uh, if you get poliovirus infection um, in that part of your brainstem, it, it, it could cause instant death. When, when I say instant, I mean within an hour or two. Not, you know, normally uh, polio, if it killed, it would take days, if not weeks, to kill. You know, your, the muscles in your lungs that allowed you to breathe would get tired, and you would eventually just run out of energy. You couldn't sleep because you know you you had to concentrate so. Um, heavily on breathing that eventually these poor, these poor children would die. Bulbar polio was a, a, an instant killer. If, if you got polio in your brainstem, which is essentially the command control center of your brain, um, it could cause respiratory failure instantly. It could cause uh, instant death. So tonsillectomies, which were, like I said, the most popular surgery at the time, uh, there was some sort of suspicion in old wives' tales that, you know, tonsillectomies somehow had something to do with polio, and they couldn't figure out why. Well, eventually they figured out, when you have damaged tissue um, in the back of your in your mouth, which is essentially centimeters away from your brainstem, it's not going to be that hard for a Enterovirus to work its way into your brainstem. Similarly, right. in, in, the, in the same way that a pesticide might upset the dynamic of your intestine and allow an enterovirus into your spinal cord, a tonsillectomy is most assuredly going to upset the protective um, layer of, of skin and, well, the mucosal layer, I guess you would call it, and it will it will uh, inadvertently allow these neuro, uh, enteroviruses into your brainstem. There's a, there's an so, interesting backstory as to why, and you tell this in the book as well, an interesting backstory as to why tonsillectomies were so uh, popular. They actually thought that they could improve children's IQ uh, by giving them a, t uh, a tonsillectomy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard not to laugh uh, now, but it really is sad. Uh, tonsillectomies were thought to be the cure-all uh, surgery. They were, there was a, an invention, which the name of it is, uh, I think they call it a tonsil snare. If you can imagine, if you've ever, you know, done Boy Scouts and set up a snare, which is a little, a wire loop uh, that, you know, if you yank it really fast, it will close down and cinch around the leg of a rabbit or something like that. Right. They invented a, a thing, a similar uh, contrivance for snipping out the tonsils of these children and they understood the tonsils had something to do with the immune system they didn't know how it worked but they thought that removing it 
uh, moving them and the adenoids um, oftentimes would prevent children from getting sick and and to a certain extent um, it kind of worked and then it, it prevented them from having the sensation of being sick because when you get sick your you know your tonsils swell up they're full of inflammation and, and your body's fighting off the infection uh, if you don't have that you, you may get sick in a worse way but at least your throat's not going to hurt right? right so they uh, they took that and as often humans do they took a kernel of truth and extrapolated it um, to infinity and beyond and be, and believed that tonsillectomies could cure things like uh, your child is not growing enough. Your child is growing too much. Your child uh, is not smart enough. Uh, anything you could think of that some perceived ill you had with your child, it could be cured uh, with 20 bucks and a quick visit to your local doctor's office where they would snip out your kid's uh, tonsils and adenoids. Um, so it, it was an incredibly, it was the most popular surgery by far uh, in the country for decades. And nearly every child who lived around that time uh, was likely to have their tonsils snipped out. I want to talk for a few minutes. Uh, I mean, there's so much going on here in the book, but it's important to talk about uh, FDR. One of the things I learned in uh, The Moth and the Iron Lung was that I had always assumed that FDR had contracted polio as a child, but you know, he was well, well into adulthood. Tell me about how FDR may have come down with polio. Yeah, it uh, at that time, just to give you a little bit of context, um, polio was still mysterious. They called it infantile paralysis. Remember, they didn't. That was sort of the popular term for it because children already had it. Poliomyelitis was the symptom of infantile paralysis, but um, it was considered a disease of infants. Um, so I'm trying to think of the context. It was at that time FDR was in the prime of his life. He was the uh, quintessential American male, uh, you know, going out on taking over army frigates to, to pilot it through the waters onto his way home. You know, he was just unafraid. He could do anything seemingly unstoppable. And while he was um, at home in a, in, a, in a vacation home in Canada, actually, um, Campobello, um, he came down with a, a terrible um, fever and illness and shakes. And, and within a day, his legs had started tingling and it was working its way up. And they couldn't believe it. You know, it was like, here's this 36-year-old man. I believe that was his age at the time. Um, and... And does he actually have infantile paralysis? They couldn't believe it. You know, this is what children get. And as is the case with any disease, they still assumed all disease was, was you know, it was the poor. It was those who lived in squalor. And here was, uh, you know, this American icon. Um, I mean, he, was, he would later become an American icon, but he was still highly thought of at the time. Um, and he, he had polio. He had infantile paralysis. And they tried to hide it. Um, in fact, they snuck him off the island in a boat um, so that news reporters wouldn't see him, wouldn't see that he was being carried. Um, but it, it was incredibly embarrassing for him because this was something that babies got. 
and and for you know we live in a a much more sensitive world now where people's feelings are are carefully monitored and uh, their concerns assuaged at at the drop of a hat back then people were tough you know there there was no sympathy for nearly anyone um, about anything so he knew uh, when he uh, word got out that he got infantile paralysis he knew his political career was over you know no one would respect him anymore how could what they would call a cripple you know how could he ever his ambitions of being any sort of government position um, how could he ever do that um but in retrospect a lot of academics have studied his story i've certainly spent quite a bit of time studying his story story and um their suspicion uh, remember polio is a generic term the way i use it for any paralysis from intraviral infections um their suspicion that he may have had what's called guillain-barre which is another neurological condition that involves paralysis um my suspicion is it was uh, possibly Guillain-Barre or polio. I, I, you know, he had a penchant for eating uh, berries and fruits that up at, at that time were definitely being coated in lead arsenate. Um, I, 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 I don't know. It, it's it's the the truth of the matter is it's impossible to say um, what caused his paralysis. Um, it was one of the same things that many people were getting paralyzed at the time. But um, as I, I sort of uh, hinted at earlier on, there was a study in 1960 uh, that was done uh, in Detroit, and they took stool samples from, I don't know, it was about 1,000 people who had been diagnosed with um, polio, what I'm, I'm quoting, what we now call polio, and um, I think it was less than a third of them actually had a poliovirus infection. The other two-thirds had been paralyzed from either other intraviral infections or possibly acute pesticide poisoning or something else. So just to give you an idea of how impossible to, to diagnose polio was, um, they got it wrong more than one, uh, more than 66% of the time. You know, During the 60s, after the vaccine was created, they were still getting it wrong two-thirds of the time. Right. So, so and that, that leads us to, uh, you know, the, the, the polio vaccine, the development of the polio vaccine, uh, and, and the fact that they, you know, they now take credit for the polio vaccine as having eradicated polio. And, and yet they're targeting the polio virus, uh, which, as you pointed out, was uh, in the minority in terms of causing this paralysis. Yeah, it's like a third of the problem is actually poliovirus. So at best, if the vaccine worked 100%, and if 100% of the world were vaccinated for it, it would still theoretically only have taken care of a third of uh, the paralysis that was happening. But I'll, I'll just mention these two, two really quickly. There are two poliovirus, uh, poliovirus vaccines. Uh, Sox vaccine basically came out in 1954-55. It was an injected vaccine, went into the bloodstream, and it worked horribly. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of stories about contamination in the vaccine that killed people. They had to withdraw it. Um, it took years before people trusted it again. And in fact, most doctors and scientists at the time, they didn't like it themselves. They didn't like Sox, and they didn't like the vaccine. He had a good PR uh, campaign behind him, and he got all the credit. But the reality is the, the doctors and scientists of the day were waiting patiently for Albert Sabin's polio vaccine, which was an oral vaccine, 
Remember, poliovirus is an intervirus that propagates in your gut, and they thought, and they were correct, that that's where you stop it. You stop the infection in your gut, not in your bloodstream. So the reality is, um, Salk's vaccine was never received as well uh, by scientists um, as people think it was. And it actually uh, came a little too late to have actually made the decline in polio that people say it did. Polio, as, as we now think of it, you know, whatever the cause, basically started declining in 1952 and 53 when um, DDT began to be um, replaced with other pesticides. DDT was first used direct in, in civilian populations directly after World War II. It made a good run for about seven years. Polio exploded during that time. And by 1952, you start. You can look in Life magazine and you'll start seeing ads for DDT-free pesticides. So you know um, that smart moms and dads were onto it. They, they started to realize this pesticide um, was causing problems. And you start seeing polio uh, decline at that time too and it makes sense lead arsenate had started to fall out of favor and then as ddt also began to fall out of favor rates of paralysis began to go down from all different enteroviruses now the sock vaccine did come along a few years later um, but it worked horribly it didn't work well at all and in fact that's why that detroit 1960 study was commissioned is because they were concerned that the sock vaccine worked so poorly they couldn't understand why it wasn't stopping paralysis after four some of these people were having four and five shots and they were still coming down with paralysis well like i said what they discovered was these patients weren't being infected by the poliovirus they were being infected by another virus or acute pesticide poisoning so that's why the vaccine um, wasn't working for some of the time was because it was targeting the wrong microbe and the reality is um it i don't think it worked even if it did target the right microbe, uh, an intraviral infection happens in your gut. It, it makes its way into your spinal cord. And a, having antibodies in your bloodstream is, is not a great deterrent to keep that from happening. So the SOG vaccine, the injected polio vaccine, it just doesn't work uh, very good, even when it's targeting the correct virus. Now, Sabin's vaccine came along after, and that vaccine actually works. Um, it's a, a oral vaccine. You know, you, you take drops, you get it in your intestines, and it it uh, prevents or it tries to help your body create antibodies to the poliovirus. Um, but it has its own set of problems, which is um, it creates more polio. Um, you know, you will shed that virus in your stool. And in poorer countries where these kids are administered constant uh, streams of oral polio vaccine, uh, vaccine-derived polio is a constant problem. So you will never eradicate um, polio using the oral polio vaccine. And, and, and Salk, the, you know, the initial yes. polio vaccine, he said this. He said, this won't work. You will never eradicate polio using a live virus vaccine, which is what Sabin's is. It, it inadvertently creates more uh, paralysis. And in fact, in India, they just withdrew... There's three types of poliovirus. They just, about a year or two ago, they withdrew um, type two out of the vaccine because they feel like there wasn't enough wildly circulating type two poliovirus to justify the fact that they knew they were creating 
more cases of polio by the vaccine. So it, it's such an irony that the vaccine itself now is probably the most significant um, source of polio. And that's an uncomfortable fact that no one wants to talk about. It is a, a remarkable uh, book, and it's the, the history of polio that you've never heard before, The Moth and the Iron Lung. We didn't have time to talk about the development in the iron lung, which is, uh, is, is also uh, prevalent in the book, and it's, it's a wonderful story as well. Uh, but we'll leave folks to, uh, to read that for themselves. How do they get a copy of The Moth in the Iron Lung? There are two ways they can. It's available print, digital, and audiobook. Uh, you should be able to find it on Amazon. Currently, you can. I make no guarantees that they won't kick me off any day now. Um, my books are sort of uh, probably not not in the correct narrative that they would prefer. Uh, so Amazon currently and my personal website, which is forestmoretti.com, F-O-R-R-E-S-T, and then Moretti is spelled M-A-R-E-A-D-Y. You can get them through there. But I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to talk about. It's an in- incredible story that I think uh, people need to hear. Absolutely. Forrest, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Richard. Okay, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messonia, I'll be back in a flash to tell you a little bit about what's in store on episode 270 of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up Friday, how radicals are redefining America's rights, institutions, and ideals, making her globally irrelevant for the end times. In conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis. Now, all of us want to tackle the big issues of today. However, they suggest that man is perfectible. He can become perfect. He can become sinless. And I think that that certainly theologically is a challengeable ideal. They use populism to emphasize material egalitarianism and social engineering. They want to take the children out of our private homes and remake them into something that they see as the right type of citizenry of the future. Uh, They don't believe in absolute truths and their values, of course, as a result are relative. And of course, there's no eternal moral order. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Kalinikta. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. 
show. And remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>